This episode of Redundancy Radio is an interview with Alex Cameron and Roy Malloy, a creative duo hailing from Australia. Alex you'll know from the extraordinary music he puts out under his name, and more recently his video collaborations with his partner, the artist and actor Jemima Kirk. And you'll know Roy Malloy from his spectacular saxophone playing in Alex's band, and his marvellous crane Instagram accounts in which he finds and documents construction cranes. Alex and Roy met a very, very long time ago. Actually, a few years ago, Alex told me that he first encountered Roy when he saw him throwing a bag of lemons into the gutter on a street. And Alex asked what he was doing and Roy yelled back, the world already has too many lemons. And they became instant friends. So now they're a creative partnership taking on the world with music, video, music videos, script writing, anything else they can get their hands on. Alex Cameron's third studio album, Miami Memory, has just come out. And it's both a gift to Jemima and a withering look at what men can be capable of in 2019 while also promoting and empowering entrepreneurial safe sex workers. It's one of the most interesting, funny, sexy and clever albums to come out this year and it's definitely worth a listen. Also, try and catch Alex and Roy on stage if you can, because it's a delight. Here they are talking about script writing, teenage jobs, making music videos, work ethic and their no crime policy. Last time I saw you was November 2016, and now it's June 2019. So we met quite a long time ago, and I think quite a lot has changed in your lives in the last few years. How do you think you've changed as people in the last couple of years? Um, well, I'd like to think that um, just from spending so much time with with Roy and and our and our band and uh, and my partner, I've learned a lot about how I interact and deal with. Um, some very minor conflicts in my personal life and in my business life and I I'd like to think I've got a, a calmer approach to to dealing with those conflicts yeah Roy um, I mean the environment's been changing so much it's hard to keep a track of yourself but the, the big one for me I sobered up two years sober coming up on it really yeah I mean doing some drugs of course but, but no drinking why did you make that decision uh Impulse control. Need to need to control my impulses and not do fucking maniacal shit every one in ten days. How do you feel now? Wonderful. Would you recommend it? Um, I mean, some people are great drinkers every night of the week, but for, for me it changed my life. So, you know, if you think that you're a problematic drinker, give it a go. Cool. Was it very difficult? Yes. <laughs> but, but worth doing for your health and your, the people around you. Well done. So Thank what does you. life look like at the moment for the two of you? How do you describe your lives? Um, well, we spent a year out at the, the Rockaways in Queens, New York. Is that uh, where you're living now? That's Well, I was living there for a year and, and Roy moved in downstairs from me in the same house. Uh, and then I moved to, to Brooklyn, to Park Slope in Brooklyn to be closer to my girlfriend and, and, uh, and Roy got the keys. And he now, he now lives out there. But we, we spent a lot of time together in New York, uh, writing. Um, once we finished the album, um, we, were po- we were sort of, we went on tour. <laughs> we're constantly asking our agents if we can tour and they're constantly telling us no because they're trying <laughs> to wait for the cycle to start and all that kind of stuff. So we've had the first three months off uh, in five years and we're, we're trying to make the most of it in New York. Um, Roy's writing uh, scripts for TV. Uh, Are you? 
Just a couple little things, yeah. Cool. So that's kind of like the focus of the the creative focus is shifting to that after the record's finished, if you know what I mean. Like, in the same way that Roy makes time to listen to my songs and provide uh, criticism and input, that's kind of like, it's now my role to do that for Roy. Uh, so I feel myself readying for that, you know. Um, and I guess we're going to, like, just take summer to, to be with the people that we, uh, we, we love to be with. Yeah, I agree with that. Looking, I mean, summer's been wonderful so far, and it's we got another. I don't know how many more weeks we got off, but many, many weeks. What's we, the perfect summer's day in New York? What would you do? Ah, uh, oh, I go out in my backyard, and my my neighbour Richard's there, <laughs> sunbaking, maybe his lovely girlfriend, and we just lay on the concrete together and uh, just watch the the wasps buzz around and and the the planes fly over. It's right next to JFK Airport. Lovely. Maybe get the train in, see Al and Jem, see the kitties and hang out for a bit. God, that sounds good. Pretty good, huh? Yeah, it's good. Perfect summer day for me. Probably probably load um, the kids up and, and, and put Jemima in the in the passenger seat and, and we drive out to the Rockaways and go see Uncle Roy and, uh, and, and get the kids pretty fired up to go and build some sandcastles. And, <laughs> and then go back to the house after the beach you know and uh, have uh, Maribel next door come over and, and sit the kids and, and we might pop down to uh, to, a, to a, a restaurant named Uma's and get a meal what's Uma's like? Uma's is like a I don't know what they call they call it Eurasian cuisine I'd say Eurasian yeah Corca- uh, from the Caucasus mm. <laughs> they do like dumplings and, and stews and soups and we were going there for like a year and then uh, Anthony Bourdain passed away and, uh, and we found out that it was like his favorite restaurant in, in the area. And maybe in New York, I don't know how to put it, but I haven't read any of his writing about the restaurant, but we've been going there like this place is so good. And like it's, it's in the middle of the Rockaways, you know, who would have thought there'd be this brilliant, like hearty kitchen, you know, and we just eat there whenever we, whenever we get some money, we go there. And it's like, it's just such good food. You feel like you got all your vitamins for like a week. Yeah, I agree. 10, 12 bucks plus some dessert if you want. It's a lovely restaurant. It's so good. I think like one of the things about, um, I actually don't know how old you are, but I feel like as I'm getting older, I'm 30. Like I'm kind of forming relationships with restaurants, which is something that I think is like a mark of age. Maybe alongside having like a heated towel rail or something. It's kind of like, it means that you're evolving. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I guess the last couple of years has seen me... Um, I'm just developing loyalty. If somewhere an establishment treats me right, then um, beyond whether or not they provide a quality service, it's, uh, I just have loyalty. If someone's ever really taken care of me, then I really do feel a need to, to respond in kind. Does that go the same for just personal relationships too? Well, a hundred percent. If if a musician, you know, does something solid for us, comes on the road, and for instance, uh, our rhythm section, Henry Lindstrom and uh, Justin Nyson, they played with us for three years on the road. Really, really like sacrificed. weren't getting paid a huge amount, but enough to get by, like we all were. And uh, so, of course, we invited them out to, to play on the record and, and flew them into Los Angeles. And it's just stuff like that. If someone, 
say Holiday Sidewinder comes and, and sings and plays keyboards with us, then it's like, you know, she's she's got first dibs on what job she wants the next tour. You know, if she wants to be the main support, yeah, then that's that's her gig for the taking. You know, it's it's just like showing appreciation through giving any opportunities that we're able to provide for people. Yeah, I agree with that absolutely. And you're right about the restaurant thing. My uh, my dad took us to the same restaurant every Sunday for, I mean, I guess. <laughs> Like 15 years. <laughs> what, what was the restaurant? It was called Indochine. And he just considered it a very affordable uh, uh, Southeast Asian restaurant <laughs> that was walking distance from the house. Well, perfect then. Mm. I love when parents hook onto a restaurant because it's affordable and you just end up loving it because of that. So yeah, I mean, it was a good restaurant. And uh, yeah, I don't know that. It's still around, and I don't think you should. I don't think that you should call Southeast Asia the Indochine anymore. But I think that's what the French colonists called it. Yeah. We were talking earlier about the the reason I made this podcast is because it got made redundant, and you said that you, Roy, had also been once made redundant. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Yeah. Uh, back, I used to work on the trams in Sydney, uh, and I guess that's, this was six years ago now. But it's uh, they had conductors. And I was working as a conductor, so you walk up and down the tram and you say good morning and you sell people a ticket with your ticket machine and you got the cash belt and everything. Wonderful job. <laughs> but, um, and you know, employed a bunch of people, but then they brought in the tap cards where you tap on the way in. I'm sure they have that in like, yeah. I think they, they do the oyster, oyster card. cards. Um, the, they brought that in and then they, uh, and then the offer that was made to, I mean, they fired 80% of us, and then the remaining 20% were offered to become a, what they were calling enforcement officers, which is where you would check people's uh, yeah. tap card, and if they hadn't swiped on, you'd give them an $80 fine. And that's just not, that wasn't really the vibe for me, so I, <laughs> so I, I took the, I didn't get a package, because I'd, uh, I'd only been there three years, but some of the boys got a decent package, I think, word was someone got 17 grand, and... No way. Yeah, I mean, they've been there for 10 years. It's a bit of a... I think you meant to... I mean, who knows? He had to take them to court, but anyway, that was my redundancy. <laughs> what was... Um, I'd like to know about the two of you, your first ever job that you had. Uh, mine, I worked in a shopping mall. Well, I mean, you can... If you, I, don't, I don't really count, like, paper routes and all that kind of no, stuff. No, I'm talking babysitting you, and stuff. No. Um, yeah, yeah. That's okay. So I was, um, I, we just left high school, and I went and got a job at uh, Hoyt Cinema, and I wanted to be a projectionist. Mm. I wanted to like, I was like, I'll start from the bottom and I'll become a projectionist. You know, I want you to go to university, and uh, and I got there. And my first, I got the job. And my first day, I turned up, and I was like, Yeah, you know, obviously I'll do whatever you want, but. Um, but I want to be a projectionist eventually, just to let you know, like get in early. Cause my just dad, to let my, you know. My dad gave me the advice, you know, you let them know you're ambitious. It's good advice. And uh, Pete's a smart guy. In, uh, they told me that projection work or projectionism was dead. Oh. And they were going to be making, after that year, they were going to be um, learning to how to use the DVD players. So um, they said that I could try and learn that if I want to. And then I... Um, a long and laborious training scheme yeah. opening up. There. Yeah. And I... Um, <laughs> and then... So I, I was walking home after that first... Um, 
I probably worked there like two weeks, maybe a month. And I was walking past a Foot Locker and the guy saw I was wearing sneakers. I got in trouble for wearing sneakers to work in the cinema. And he said, you like sneakers? I said, yeah. He said, well, come out work at Foot Locker. And I, so then my sort of real long stay with, a, with any sort of establishment was Foot Locker. I can't believe that's their recruitment tactic. Just see someone wearing sneakers and be like, you're in. Yeah, well, he knew that I would spend half my paycheck on the shoes there. I see. He's clever. So he knew your dedication. Yeah. That is clever. What Foot about Lock- you, Roy? I mean, Foot Locker in Australia is a franchise, so it's, actually, it's a quite a small business vibe. Their, oh. their hiring policies are pretty loose. I mean, they might have been at the time. My first, uh, outside of school, uh, I got a job uh, valeting cars at the Sofitel Wentworth in, uh, in town. And I'd park and unpark, you know, two or 300 cars a day, <laughs> parking so close together, you'd, you'd have to wind down the window and climb out. <laughs> and if you got it wrong, all the boys would rip on you and call you, uh, call you slurs. <laughs> that sounds long. Did you ever scratch anyone's car? Oh yeah, yeah. What all happens the time. when when a- that? About one, there were three of us on the crew, and a- at least once a week someone would scratch a car. It's just a numbers game, you know. <laughs> Same as if you're working at a cafe, you carry a hundred plates, you'll drop one. Yeah, true. But uh, Did you park a hundred cars, anything? you'll scratch one. <laughs> Did you ever find anything weird in anyone's car? Oh, yeah, all the time. What I mean, kind of stuff It was find? in the city and we were parking all these slick cars and you'd find a little bag of Coke every now and then or something like that. Did you ever take it? Um, no, I've, I never do crimes. No. We have a no-crime policy. Yeah. On account of we can't afford to hire any lawyers and I suppose we don't want to lose our visas or opportunities to travel the world. I don't want to come across a border and have to explain to them that I've got a record. No. Yeah, likewise. We, we put in place the no-crime policy years ago. That's very clever of you. Thank you. Thanks. You're good, though. I don't see you like as being um, light-fingered or dishonest. You oh, no, like no theft. Boys. I mean, theft wouldn't no. be part of it. No, it would be, it would be more reckless stuff. Thank the, thank the policy for that. The no crime policy. <laughs> uh, would you say that you've both got a good work ethic? And if so, where do you reckon that came from? Was there any point in your lives or careers or a job where you learnt that working hard pays off? Um, I've, I never really thought that what, you know, one should be aware that they have good work ethic. I've had it pointed out by other people, but I don't walk around going, yeah. I've got a good work ethic. It's a strange thing. I mean, do you like work? Yeah, I really like work. I love it. I, 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 I had this thought yesterday. The feeling of... That feeling of leaving the, my, the job I held for the longest in Sydney. The feeling of leaving it when I quit and walking home is the same feeling of walking on stage. So it's like, a, this is the best job in the world that we got right now. And, um, and I think if, if I ever learned about hard work, it was just from my old man. He, he, he still works full time. He's, you know, he's worked since he was 16 years old. And, uh, and he um, doing a number of different things. He used to work seven days a week when I was a kid. And, uh, What's his job? So he got a job at the on the docks down in in botany in, in sydney um at a white goods company called breville kitchen appliances 
And he was just like work importing, I guess, just like toasters and shit from Hong Kong. And um, and they taught him how to, eventually taught him how to play the market and stuff. So I guess he would handle like, you know, he was in in the office of like, basically figuring out the best way to get, using the market, the best prices on 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 electronic things. I don't even know. Cool. But he uh, he also like. F- on the weekends fixed boats and cleaned boats he sounds really interesting I'd say Peter Cameron's an interesting guy yeah part Chinese um basically like didn't I only found out recently didn't finish high school and I and I and um and just has like a vast intelligence for for survival and um and and basically like saving money and he I mean, we were sitting in, oddly, sitting in Chinatown eating um, some fried rice. And I was like, because we have a lot of Chinese art around our house when I was a kid. And I thought it was because he was doing business trips to China. Um, but I asked him a couple of years ago, I said, hey, how Chinese are, are we? You know, because, and he said, well, my dad's half Chinese. But, oh, wow. So we were a bit more Chinese than I thought, you know. Um, but I work, I, I learned all the basically just stick your head down and 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 pedal you know i learned that from him and he set a standard that that i don't know if i'll ever be able to reach it because frankly it's it seems superhuman um but it's it's good to know i've got i've got that to look back on whenever i'm feeling like i've i've not been working hard enough or i have been active enough you know i just it's not a hard thing to switch on you know I, the happiest i am is when we're the most satisfied I am is when we're playing six, seven nights a week and we've got a full five, six weeks ahead of us. Really? Yeah, it's the best. It's the best feeling on the planet. That's funny. I, I often interview like bands and musicians and I, I always just feel like, I, I, I don't know how, how you do it in terms of like just going and going and going and being away from your family for so long and being so tired and maybe even injured or whatever or just being like, just burnt out. But then is it just worth it because every night you know you're going to be able to like be on stage and that's or is it more than that it's more than that it's it's a full 360 you're earning um every show is an opportunity to improve uh every show is an opportunity to sell more records sell more tickets it's everything's there as long as I think the the main problem that bands encounter is they get bored of their own songs, but that's their fault. Mm. You get the instant gratification. You get your grat- You see it in people's faces as you do the show. You know, smiling faces. That's a that's a wonderful thing to see that you don't often get in the workplace when you're, you know, moving furniture or delivering pizza or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's Smiles. like it's <laughs> yeah, it's like having a running a sh- when you're not on tour. It's like owning a Foot Locker franchise, but no one's coming in to try on shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. And, uh, you know, it, we, me and Al have worked, because we, we, we come to it a little bit later. I mean, I came to it a little bit later, the whole music thing. So so the, the alternative, which is, you know, like I said, parking cars or, or selling tickets on the tram or moving furniture, the, the alternative is still pretty fresh in my memory. And this job is a lot, lot nicer than doing that shit. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, though, if you weren't doing this, you'd probably be doing, as you were saying, that like kind of script writing or something. Do you think you'd be, you'd be writing if 
or like kind of script writing or copywriting or something if you weren't in a band I don't know I've always written but I think honestly if I was sent back to if this all come down for some reason and we went back to Sydney I honestly I'd probably go up the Waverley Bar Step and get a job there and just enjoy my writing on the side yeah and I mean when I think of fiction writers I think of I don't think you really make it in that world till you're 40 or 50 anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's nice thinking that, isn't it? Yeah. There's yeah. a really good Wikipedia list somewhere of people who didn't who didn't really start doing what they wanted to be doing until they were like 35. Right. And when you read that, it's like, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, I, saying, I said <laughs> yesterday to somebody, you know, op- different opportunities come to different people at, you know, different times in their life. Mm, for sure. I, I um... Yeah, I was in a, I was in a band in, in Sydney when... We were about 20 years old, and there was a guy, it ended up getting some radio play and and selling some tickets to some shows. And our managers would like, rightly so, because they're running a business, trying to find a way to cash in on it. And I was I was a little bit of a slug, like a slug. I was like, because we were also working full time. I told I told him, and I definitely told myself, like, I don't think I'm really ready to to push this thing until I'm in my, around my mid 30s anyway. Like, why? Because I wasn't good enough yet. I didn't want to get the light shone on me too bright before I'd actually developed my my skills and knew exactly what I wanted to do as a musician. You know, there's there's, there's good fortune accidentally coming across some music that is good when you're super young and that people like. Mm. But the other side of that coin is like making sure your taste is in line, making sure you are who you are and who you want to be as an artist. Yeah. before you really commit to like this is what I do and what you're trying to say and that you know if, when you're saying something when you're 20 by the time you're 30 that might shift completely into something else which is okay but it's okay to shift right it's okay to completely it's okay to shift yeah yeah yeah, yeah I, I, I mean I obviously encourage it in artists um, but I'm not necessarily just talking about like creative decisions uh, I'm talking about like identity and and um, and the soul of who I was as an artist then is is something that I feel was still being developed maybe we should talk about the new album Good <laughs> yeah Miami memory Miami memory I feel like there's been a lot of excitement about this album like everyone kind of is really pumped for it I I, I hope so it's it's um without being on the road and without playing shows I don't even know if any, you know, it's, there's no measure. You just have some numbers and you can you can write to the record label, but they're just going to send you back a spreadsheet with, with streaming numbers. So it's very hard to get a tangible, like, how is this going? Are people listening to my music? Um, but everywhere we go, people seem to be really excited and, um, and invested. And uh, they have a feeling of... Um, you know, anticipation. Yeah. And I, I know for sure it's the best record we've ever done. So it's a, a lot of confidence in the in the camp between myself and Roy. I think it's your best as well. And I think the reason everyone's excited is because it's um, the songs in it are giving us something that everyone sort of didn't really know they wanted but kind of needed. Mm. And the commentary you're making and the stuff that you're saying is just perfect for now. Like there's, I mean, the lyrics in the album, I feel like it's almost like I'm watching, when I listen to the songs of the new record, I feel like I'm watching a TV show and I'm kind of seeing characters and I'm kind of going inside their heads and it's like their stream of consciousness about what they're seeing around them. 
which is like not many other bands or records give me that sensation. Wow, I, I'm I'm glad that that's that's your experience of it. Kind of like a yeah, like a stream of consciousness, like that, like their characters. A yeah. bit like, and do you do you purposely invent characters to be on the record, or do you think about people and how they would think about stuff? It's it's a lot of a lot of conversation, you know, whether I'm talking to myself or, or if I if I if I utter a phrase when talking to Roy or something, it's it's all conversation for me. Mm. All of songwriting is, if I'm able to have a conversation with someone about it, then it can be a good song. So it ends up being dialogue almost. Yeah, it seems like dialogue. Yeah. How does it work between the two of you? I don't think I asked you that years ago, but you're writing and then how, how do you work together in terms of putting the song together? Well, Roy, I mean, we set up the business to have two different um, fields that we're in charge of. You know, I, I was always going to be in charge of the music and the songwriting and Roy's in charge of of um, the, the long form writing, you know, whether it be... Um, posts online or or the scripts that Roy's writing or you know so we're getting more and more interest in in what we're capable of as a as a duo a creative partnership when it comes to things like TV and and cinema movies and whatnot um so the way we work is we just try and like we just literally present something to the other person the other person sits with it for a day or two and then comes back with um either edits or just a few different um generally one or two points about what they would have changed or just two big thumbs up <laughs> yeah Al's the songwriter yeah uh, but I, I you know I'm lucky to be privy to the you know the early and you know very very early glimpses at it and lucky to have his ear and to weigh in when I when I feel appropriate but how did your I remember you telling me a long time ago that your friendship started when you saw Roy carrying a big hessian sack of lemons into the street and dumping it there and then yelling out to you that there, there's already too many lemons in the world. Yeah. How did your friendship then... I don't know if that story's true. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I don't know about a hessian sack. I remember a plastic bag, but... <laughs> it's romanticised slightly by Alec. Yeah. <laughs> I had to think of Roy with a sack. Um, but how did you, how do you go from just being friends to then, to understanding that you can, that you can work together collaboratively or like creatively and, and make work because that's quite a big step in a friendship and it's, it's putting yourself into a very vulnerable open situation where you can share like, I mean, creativity really. I mean, I guess it comes from just like, I mean, when you've known each other that long and you spend that long trying to, you know, make your dumb gags and make each other laugh and that sort of thing. I, I guess that's the nexus of it. Is, is that fair to say, Alex? Yeah. I mean, there's friends that you can have disagreements with and never want to see again. And there's friends you can have disagreements with and either want to convince them or, or you're able to be convinced by them. Mm. You know, I think I've got a really... Like, Roy and I have disagreed on a, in, in the... 25 years we've known each other you know Roy and I have disagreed on a lot we've agreed on more and he's convinced me of a lot you know it's like some people you're open to being influenced by and other people you'd be ashamed to be influenced by you know I'm, I'm like completely comfortable with with uh, having my ideas be influenced by by Roy's input and I guess we've had a long time to consider whether or not we respect each other's opinion yeah, and spent a lot of time together. Yeah. 
It helps that we also need to do it for money. <laughs> we've signed a, a like we've we've tied our hands together and we're driving straight into a wall. <laughs> you know? And uh and when you're in that kind of situation it's like um you know that that you're both in it for the long run and that when when you say something you mean it. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. What's your attitude to money? Do you have a healthy relationship with, with money? Do you... Oh, we can fucking spend it like crazy. I guess I got that from my mother than, rather than my father, but we, we focus on the earning. We really set about trying to earn money in every way we can. <coughs> and, you know, you're talking about work ethic before. I know Alex is going to get up and get up in the morning and, and be there doing the work, you know, if, if it's on. And there's a lot of confidence and each other, I think, in that sense, knowing that we'll show up and do it, do the work and take opportunities and, and do things properly. Yeah. Doing things properly is like a real, it's like a, a mantra of ours that um, I think it was just, it was just something said by Australians from our parents, like age group. My dad would just constantly say, "Do it properly, do it properly," <laughs> and then I and then I I never really brought it up. And then Roy told me that his his experience with that generation of people was exactly the same: do it properly, do it properly. Yeah. He had a guy in the moving crew or something. Yeah, old Remco, the furniture crew used to say it. Is it was almost all he said. You wouldn't, you know, someone had someone wouldn't wrap one of the blankets around a bit of furniture, and they'd just bang it in the back of the truck, and he'd say, "Get it out, do it properly." Yeah, now you mention that, I feel like it's something that I've been told throughout my whole life too by that generation. I think it's, that is accurate. They've got their foibles, but that's a sound, <laughs> that's a sound piece of advice. Foibles. Is that a word? <laughs> yeah, it is. I just haven't heard it for a while. Oh, good, good. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, that's a good bit of it. That's, that's a sound bit of advice. Yeah. And me and Al definitely took it on board and try, and try and apply it to the stuff we do. Don't do things by halves. Yeah. I was reading the Henry Rollins bio um, for the record, very cool. He yeah, wrote it, yeah, wrote we were, it brilliantly. Yeah, really lucky to, that. I mean, he's been. There's a f- couple of people that have helped us, but it, you'd be you'd be hard you'd be hard pressed trying to find someone who's helped us more than Henry Rollins. Really? Yeah. How how? He, I so, in Sydney, 2013, 2014, when I put the record out, like my I, I printed 300 copies. He's one of the first people to buy one. <laughs> Don't know how and oh, actually I know how. There's an, a record label in Australia called. Rice is nice, and um, that's a good name. Yeah, it's run by a friend of ours, Julia Wilson. Cool. And I suppose Henry approached her and said, "Can you send me some good Australian music?" And she happened to like get, get, recommend that he listen to our record, "Jump in the Shark," and uh, and he was the first person I think like in any radio to play us. Wow. And he played us in LA in KCRW, and I had no idea it was happening, because I had these emails from from a Henry in my inbox saying, "Can I get the digital copies <laughs> of your album so I can play them on my radio show?" And the email address was just like a phrase that had the word that had his name in it, Henry something something something. And so I thought it was a friend of mine, Henry, who had started a radio show. And the next time I saw my friend Henry. I said, how's the radio show going? I don't know, why are you getting into it? I didn't pick, pick you as a radio person. He said, I'm not in radio. What are you talking about? So I went back to my house and, and Googled, or not Googled, went into my Gmail and 
and uh, she was like, who's this from? And I was like, holy smokes, Henry Rollins been writing to me, playing my songs on the radio. Did you email back then being like, sorry, I just realized who you are? Um, I think I might have written something like, hey, just to let you know, I really appreciate you. Mm. You're doing yeah. all this. But he's, I mean, I don't think he's the kind of guy that would think twice out of the way. He's just been so friendly. And it, he promoted our first show in L.A., um, which I th- has a, a, a lot of people turned up to because he promoted it on his radio show. And and that same concert was when uh, our record label, Secretly Canadian, came to check us out. So yeah. they came and saw us with a ton of people there in Los Angeles and it would have convinced them that something good was happening. Wow. Um, he, for the last record, Forced Witness, he recorded all the... the um, the voice clips for our Spotify ads. It was his voice selling the songs on Spotify. He's just been so generous. I went to his house and hung out with him last time I was in LA. He's just like a super solid person. Yeah, he sounds like a great guy. Yeah, I've just blown away by how nice he is. Like an enthusiast. Yeah, he Mm. said, I think, you know, you'd catch him saying it, but he's a a fan first, you know, of music generally. Yeah. And that's like, to me like very impressive that someone who's had success as a as a lyricist and as a performer but is not even he's not even close to jaded yeah he's just excited about music still which i think is like you know enviable yeah that's the best in the bio he um and just kind of going back to the whole theme of like work he talks about um some of the inspiration behind the record being kind of your shifting attitude towards stuff like sex work, um, presumably through your partner. Like, I mean, I think, it's, I think it said something along the lines of the conversations you were having with her and the people she was introducing you to, like, changed your whole attitude to, to, to stuff. And it, that's kind of like, is, your, is that kind of a big theme on the record or is that just like one or, one or two songs? Um, I think a big theme on the record is, is taking the time to appreciate someone who is often considered as a statistic to be a person with an individual story and a layered life. I think that, you know, women who are victims of emotional abuse or domestic abuse, sex workers, you know, like single mothers or step parents, just these these types of people in society who are generalized and batched in. Um, I mean, independent sex work is the kind of sex work I'm singing about, you know, not like, not forced sex work or, mm. or, or victims of, you know, trafficking or something like that. I, this is a, there's a very specific type of sex work where the, the operator is essentially running a business and sets the, picks their clientele and, and sets their fees and is in control, you know, in a, in a safe environment. And, uh, and that's the kind of sex work I'm singing about. And that's the kind of sex work I learned about through, through discussions with Jemima and, and her friends who are in the sex work industry. But we, we've also been really lucky that um, often people will come to our show and, and want to hang out afterwards and, and they're, they're part of the sex work community. Really? Yeah, so I don't know what it is um, except to say that it's it's common 
so common that there, there are people from the sex work community who are fans of our music, you know, and it, it takes a quite a specific person to be fans of our music, personality-wise. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, it feels right. Um, I mean, you said conversations before, and I'll say that you're a, you're a wonderful listener, Alex, and you can see who you've been listening to in many ways through the songs, and you've been listening close. Yeah, I was struck when we, when we spoke before about how many... You were, you were mentioning people all the time, and the way you spoke about people, I think you were, you were talking about Angel Olsen, and not just about her record, which was My Woman, which was new at the time, but about her as a person, and the way you describe people kind of showed me that like that, that is like a huge part of, of what you do, and you kind of um, really treasure the relationships around you, and that kind of goes straight into the, is straight into the record. Is that right? I mean, I, I suppose that's, that's, um, that's your observation, but I do really like that observation. Yeah, I guess you're right. I hadn't really thought about it. But uh, yeah, I, I, quite, I value that. I'll think about it. <laughs> Thank you. That's a nice observation. <laughs> um, okay, we've got to wrap things up soon. Can you tell me about making your music videos? Because not many artists um, put so much effort and time and potentially money uh, into making really, really spectacular music videos now. But can you tell me about why you like the process of making them? And can you also, and then I want to ask you as well about the most recent video uh, for Miami Memory. I can't, I can't say except that our interest for making music videos probably comes from an inherent desire and plan to one day make movies. <laughs> I mean, uh, we, uh, we've kind of, we've collaborated on little movies and videos for a long, long time, you know. Uh, a friend of ours at school got a video camera when we were 14 or 15 and and since then it's just been more and bigger and better year by year and music videos are an extension of that and, and yeah eventually we haven't had a firm conversation about it but it's always been assumed I guess that we would we would aim to make a feature-length film one day <laughs> I'm not sure yeah you definitely should I feel like watching your videos, it, it, as well as them being kind of, they must be so creatively fulfilling to, to make, or like to kind of, to, to plan and then, and then film and then watch back and edit. But also alongside that, it must just, it looks like it must be so much fun and just like really exciting. And even just like getting, in, getting into a costume is, is like exhilarating and fun, right? Absolutely is, yeah. I mean like, I think that's one of the first things that struck me about this act in general was just like, a respect for performance and presentation mm. that we saw as um, as being like sorely lacking in the in our in our scene in Sydney and Australia, and then when we did more traveling, we realized it was kind of lacking everywhere. I I, I, have, I mean I'm certainly not going to name names, but even when people do dress up to perform these days, I. I have a lot to say about what they're wearing and I'm mm. just a bit like, what's going on? Where's the taste, you know? And I, and I think that um, we've been lucky and that we've managed to um, surround ourselves with people who, ha have like, who are like-minded and, and uh, have their own confident variety of taste. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think Jemima, my girlfriend, is she just seems to be like the embodiment of of taste, of good taste. She's like a world of knowledge, information, experience, and creativity. 
it, the perfect combination of all those things that goes into someone just naturally without really thinking about it making the most beautiful decisions you know visually in her art in the way she dresses in the way she decorates in the in the purchases she makes in the way she treats the people around her it's just it's so fucking classy and so tasteful that it's like it's just a constant inspiration for me it's quite rare to find someone like that it's funny that you mentioned that people's uh, the way they can move through a room or or like talk to someone can be like under the taste umbrella too it's like every decision you make is 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 good yeah is, is beautiful or is interesting yeah I, I i think yeah the way she carries herself is is a constant like you can just watch it i think that's why the camera likes her i think that's why mm. people like her when she acts because she just people glue glue the, glue their eyes to her because it's pleasing yeah for sure and you guys too thank you it's a lovely compliment <laughs> i don't know we're quite in gems league just yet but we're striving and yeah, working every day so yeah. we'll see <laughs> um i think that's kind of all we have time for i'm gonna ask you two more very small questions sure what is the best thing about doing what you guys do what is the thing that makes you the most happy I um the best thing for me is is how tired I am after a show. Yeah. I'm just drenched in sweat. I'm I'm get rehydrating. It's probably time for to have one drink. One or two tequilas. And I'm just cooked. Completely cooked and I've not got a worry in the world. Um I like that we're sort of the we're steering the ship. It's nice to be making your own decisions and you know wearing the consequences, good or bad, is you know a better feeling if it's your choices that you made going into it. And also to spend on to project something widely, you know, affect a, affect your environment, your, your your broader environment. It's a very satisfying feeling for me. That's nice. And then the last question is, what is what's the key to a good life? Um, it's just a small little question yeah. Yeah, isn't <laughs> key to a good life is um, I, th I think uh, is is learning how to give pleasure while receiving pleasure very good answer I've always, had a, I've always had a good relationship with expectations you know and it, it just means that whether I'm selling tickets on the trams or whatever I'm always a little bit surprised by how nice it is <laughs> So a job like this for me, is, and you know, the opportunities that me and Al have had have been a very big, very pleasant surprise. So I, yeah, I've always kept my expectations in, in, a, in a place that's pretty easy to get contented from. So you're quite like a positive, optimistic person. I've found myself that way, yeah. 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 I think it's important even if you're in a job that, I feel like sometimes if I had any job, I would, I would probably end up enjoying it. Sometimes I, well, I used to think before I watched too many documentaries that I'd actually quite enjoy prison. I feel like I'd <laughs> quite enjoy most things if you just kind of I mean, smile stare, and stare at the wall. Enjoy meal, your meals gruel. come out of the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to prison. Yeah, no, same, same. Well, I don't with, think with I'd enjoy With your no that. crime rule, you probably won't. You'll be fine. That's right. Unless Avoiding it, prison time's a big part of that rule. There's always manslaughter though. That's the killer. We hire drivers now. We we get we, oh, we have two managers who drive, so that that cuts our manslaughter risk in half. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Good. 
Thank you so much. Thanks, Liv. <laughs> Thanks for coming and talking to us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Always a pleasure.